This podcast contains adult language and subject matter. But that thing I thought for sure was in the back of the net. Ed Belfour was an individual in every sense of the word. He was a goaltender whose competitive juices were never questioned. He was distinctly Eddie the Eagle in that he was equal parts grumpy, clever, tireless, and meticulous. He also won 484 games for five NHL teams the Chicago Blackhawks, San Jose Sharks, Dallas Stars, Toronto Maple Leafs, and Florida Panthers, while ranking fourth in career penalty minutes among goalies. He went from undrafted to Stanley Cup champion. Most notably, Belfour was intense and detailed. He was the dogged perfectionist. I'm John Mattis, and this is When Goalies Were Weird, a narrative podcast from The Score. Each episode tells the story of one unforgettable 1990s-era goalie. In the 90s, there was no more fascinating position in all of professional sports than the hockey goalie. These goalies were just plain weird. They played weird, with weird hybrid styles and funky mechanics. They looked weird and acted weird, with weird helmets, superstitions, and bad tempers. The position was undergoing a revolution in style and substance, as the butterfly goalie replaced the stand-up while advancements in equipment technology helped usher in a modernized, more athletic playing style. The old guard's quirks and the new guard's innovations melded together to produce an era of pure chaos in the blue paint. It was the most bewildering amalgamation of players hockey has ever produced, and one fans will never forget. In the late 1980s, the Chicago Blackhawks had a hell of a time settling on a number one goalie. The decade's final regular season saw Jacques Cloutier and Elaine Chevrier split the starting role, while Greg Millen and Jimmy Waite pitched in as third and fourth string options. There was also a 25-year-old rookie named Ed Belfour, who, after returning to Chicago following a one-year sabbatical with Canada's national team, appeared in nine playoff games. He was then unleashed in 1990-91, starting 70 of the Hawks' 80 games. By the end of 1991, Belfour's league-best 43 wins and league-high 9-10 save percentage had eliminated any lingering doubt about his ability to be the club's go-to netminder of the present and the future. Internally, teammates were captivated by what was unfolding behind the scenes. The dude prepared for games like an absolute maniac. Jeremy Roenick, a young, impressionable forward at the time, was floored. This is a guy who would sit in the locker room after games and sharpen his skates for two or three hours and work on his equipment to make sure it felt proper and felt good and he felt comfortable and there were no excuses. So bad that the trainers used to leave and put the traveling skate sharpener out in the hallway so that they could lock up the locker room and Eddie could sit up there in the hallway as long as he wants till two, three in the morning to make sure that his edges were perfectly right because Eddie had a certain way of of sharpening his skates that he wouldn't let anybody else do it. 
trainers just let him do his thing. And, and if he didn't, Eddie would freak out. He would literally lose his mind and break things and scream and yell. And you don't want to get on Eddie's bad side. Belfour may have been gruff on occasion, and we'll get to that part of his personality later, but he did genuinely care about the tools of the trade, his beloved gear. Goalies tend to fiddle with their gear more than skaters for both performance and protection reasons. But Belfour went above and beyond. He was the first guy in and last guy out of the dressing room. In Chicago, he occasionally slept in a bunk bed located in what amounted to a storage room. In Dallas, the start time for practice had to be pushed back, and buses departed later to accommodate Belfour's obsessive habits. It didn't matter where he was playing or how far he was into his career. Belfour tinkered with everything imaginable. Skates, sticks, blockers, trappers, pads, name a piece of equipment, and at some point, he probably examined it with the disposition of a surgeon. He was a self-proclaimed perfectionist, and over time, became as expert as the equipment managers. Belfour had all the industry lingo down pat. He was knowledgeable about the various materials used by manufacturers, and he even learned how to safely operate dressing room machinery, like that skate sharpener. Steve Sumner, the longtime head equipment manager for the Dallas Stars, can still picture Belfour standing by the skate sharpening machine early in the morning of a practice day. Dressed in nothing but underwear, he's totally zeroed in on the skate. He would tell me to be there at 7 and he would be there at 6.30, you know, it was one of those things. And he would be already in there and he, where you been? And I'm like, well, you told me 7. I mean, like, <laughs> he was in tune with all of his stuff. So when he let me sharpen his skates, he would go, Sud, you redressed the stone when you did this one because this one's sharper than this one. And I'm like, man, I did it the, exactly the same. I didn't touch anything or whatever, but he knew. Don't get it twisted. Belfour liked and trusted Sumner. The highest compliment an equipment guy could receive back in the day was the okay to sharpen the Eagles' skates. Sumner explains that in the late 90s and early 2000s, the typical goalie liked a one-inch sharpening. This created a shallow radius in the hollow, or middle groove, and produced a fairly dull skate blade compared to those used by forwards and defensemen. However, Belfour found that sharpening it at three-eighths 5 eighths or 7 eighths of an inch was more up his alley. Those measurements created much sharper edges in the blade. He would also tilt his skates on a different angle when sharpening them to produce an uneven surface. This adjustment allowed him to push off his toes and carve the front half of his steel blade into the ice with greater ease. Of course, it wasn't solely the act of sharpening that Belfour enjoyed. He was into accessories. He had his own customized skate holder, or jig, on the sharpening machine, and he would insist on wearing customized cowling, the clunky, oversized piece of protective plastic on the bottom of a goalie skate. Belfour's biggest equipment-related investment in terms of time, energy, and money came in the mid-90s when he and a friend designed a special kind of cowling, or shell as he calls it, that held a removable blade. Belfour says it was such a breakthrough in the industry that Reebok eventually bought the patents off him and his business partner. Here's Belfour himself on the innovation. We designed the blades with holes in them so they were nice and lightweight. Our first shells were made out of uh, carbon fiber and Kevlar, so they were a lot lighter, and we could take the blades on and off and try different profiles of blades. I would try different hollows and different angles and different pitches, uh, which allowed me to play differently on 
different times, different types of equipment, different types of pads. So all that came into play on how I wanted to play my game. So there was a lot of experimentation that went on with the blades. I think we had a lot of fun with it, but at times we uh, got lost a little bit too. You know, you'd try something that didn't quite work out in those nights. You let in six or seven goals. <laughs> those nights weren't so fun. Belfour has mentioned a few times over the years that he would stash away sacred pieces of equipment for important moments. For example, he would bring out his magic pads in the playoffs. Or, as Sumner found out, Belfour would get attached to a specific set of pads that reminded him of a winning streak or reaching the pinnacle of the sport. Belfour once asked Sumner to rebuild the set he used in the 99 Cup run, so Sumner waited until players and staff were gone for the day before opening up the dusty pads. Foam and deer hair covered the room as he restuffed them with fresh material. It was Sumner's job to act on player equipment requests. But what about equipment manufacturers? I asked X-Stars goalie development coach Rick St. Croix about this, because there must have been somebody, somewhere, annoyed by Balfour's perfectionism. Over the years, you could bump into a trainer that said, oh my goodness, you know, I know Vaughn, for example, Mike Vaughn, just a great guy, and he was making his pads for a number of years. Then uh, there was a year where the pad just wasn't right. And I think he made six pairs for him by the midway point of the season. And we had to say, Eddie, I got a life to live. I got a big business to run. I can't keep making you these pads. I'm trying my best here, but not, not quite right, Mike. Got to get back to it. Not quite right. So I'm sure there it was like, I love you, but I have a lot of other goalies to work with too. I only appreciate someone who, who wants that badly. I have appreciation for excellence that he acquired. Based on a dozen conversations with ex-teammates, it's safe to say Belfour's peers didn't mind that he was high maintenance. The star goalie wasn't holding up the bus because he was screwing around. He was legitimately trying to better himself by going the extra mile. Steve McKeegan, one of Belfour's goalie coaches in Toronto, provides a nuanced take. In a game, a guy would come down the wing and shoot far side pad. And the mistake would be Belfort didn't get his stick on the puck and ramp the puck up safely into the corner. The puck would hit his shin or boot break on the pad and come out into danger and they would score. So we would talk about the goal the next morning at the morning skate. And he, under no circumstances, would accept the blame of fucking up by not getting his stick on the puck. He'd say his pads sucked, and he would look at the front of his pads with a Sharpie and say, this vertical roll on my shin needs to be an HC95 high-density foam, and the pads suck. So he would blame the goal on the gear. But here's the, the reason why he's Hall of Famer, because that's not how he left it. He sent the pads out to get fixed, but in the very next breath, he would want to set up the exact same drill that caused the problem that he blamed on his fucking pads and then work on getting proper stick involvement and making the technical correction that was his fault. One thing Belfort didn't tinker with a whole lot was his goalie mask. The mean eagle was iconic, and you don't mess with iconic even if you're the type to get lost in minutia. The mask, which changed only slightly as he moved around during his career, truly meant something to Belfort. He was drawn to the Eddie the Eagle look because he felt eagles represented confidence, vision, individuality, and leadership. An eagle hunts and is aggressive, Belfour once said, before noting that those are characteristics he deeply admired. Now Tuckett turned, 
the 21st century hockey scout is spoiled. He or she has quick access to cross-country and international flights to see virtually any player in the flesh. And if traveling isn't feasible, there's a mountain of video and statistics to pour over. The goal, as the old adage goes, is to leave no stone unturned. Now, I don't know if you could claim the same for the scouting community while Ed Belfour was coming of age in the early to mid-80s in the tiny farming town of Carmen, Manitoba. For every hidden gem plucked out of obscurity by a shrewd talent evaluator, there were dozens of mid-tier prospects flying under the radar. So, even though Belfour played high school and junior hockey only an hour from the hub that is Winnipeg, the dedicated young netminder remained off the beaten path. I'll tell you this, it wasn't because people didn't try to let people know about Ed Belfour. People within the province of Manitoba knew about him. I was with the U-17 Team West, part of the Canadian Sport Excellence team that went on to the World Championships. And I had a scout from New York Rangers come up and ask me, he says, can Ed Belfort play in the NHL? And I said, yep, he can. He's just got to get the right route. He will play in the NHL. I don't know that he was getting the, the credibility he deserved, but they were looking at him. That was Ernie Sutherland, who coached Belfort at Carmen Collegiate and also for three seasons with the Winkler Flyers of the Junior A Manitoba Junior Hockey League. He's a bit of a Belfort historian. He notes that the son of Alma and Henry was an all-around athlete who played basketball, badminton, and golf, and ran cross-country and track. At 19, Belfort earned his first of two Goalie of the Year awards in the MJHL. However, because the league was a rung below major junior status, his accolades didn't command national attention and he wasn't really in consideration for Canada's world junior team. Belfour's junior A mastery resonated stateside, though, with the University of North Dakota extending him a scholarship offer for the 1986-87 college season. He joined the Fighting Sioux as a 21-year-old freshman and immediately made a tangible impact. Tony Herkus, UND's leading scorer that year, told me that he and the team's other forwards were so confident in Belfour's ability to make the first save that they would regularly blow the zone to trigger an odd man rush the other way. Belfour, Herkus added, was the final piece for a well-coached, tight group that finished with a 48-0 record. UND captured the NCAA title over Michigan State with Belfour holding down the fort. A collegiate champion, he was no longer hiding in plain sight. Around this time, six or seven NHL teams expressed interest in signing Belfour, and he ultimately chose the Chicago Blackhawks. Back then, he could have been characterized as raw in regards to skill development, and experimental with respect to not only equipment, but also playing style. Take it from Chris Clifford, Belfour's first goaltending partner in the pro ranks. When I played with him, he was far from the finished product. Like, it was, it was just his first few years of professional hockey. And he was coming to us from uh, the university at Rask. And um, the thing that really carried him through those first few years and kind of accelerated, and certainly above anyone else who was in the minors at the time, and you could see him growing in the position, was his, uh, his mobility, his ability to cover a lot of real estate. And as he developed his playmaking skills, the ability to move the puck, um, again, that elevated him above. Uh, but above all of that, he just competed so hard for the saves. So some goalies are technically sound, but when they're beat, 
particular would be. But with, with, uh, with some ghoulies, they just sort of never give up on it. That was it. Clifford and Balfour were teammates on the 8788 and 8889 Saginaw Hawks, Chicago's IHL affiliate. Early in the duo's second season together, Belfour made his NHL debut against the Detroit Red Wings. He turned aside 45 of 49 shots in a 4-3 overtime road loss. In total, Belfour appeared in 23 NHL games and 29 IHL games in 88-89. The next season, he was loaned to the Canadian national team. The globetrotting squad was led by Dave King, a well-respected bench boss who had a knack for developing players. The roster, as defenseman Brad Schlegel frames it, was a cast of misfits. Top prospects, minor leaguers, and seasoned pros, who at that moment didn't fit in elsewhere. Don't forget, the NHL wouldn't send its players to the Olympics for another nine years. And, since the next Winter Games weren't until 1992, the national team's schedule was unconventional. They'd train on and off the ice for three to four weeks straight, play a bunch of games in a row, at home, in the United States, or overseas, then do it all over again. Schlegel recalls all of these intervals wearing on a few Team Canada players. Guys would sometimes cut corners in practice or during an off-ice workout, not Belfour. Never seemed to bother him. Like a lot of us on the national team would say like, holy mackerel, like I can't believe we're, you know, we're, we're having to do this now and this and having to jump boxes and having to do weights and having to ride the bike. This was long before those kind of programs were prevalent in hockey. I don't recall ever hearing that from Eddie. He kind of was game for anything. We need your fourth hour of practice for the 20th day in a row, being pushed that hard and to, to still have that kind of energy and fire was really quite impressive. And he wasn't a bodybuilder. He was more lean, but he, he was wiry and, and kind of had a toughness about him. I, I would call him tough. Yeah, I would call him tough mentally and tough physically. Determination was one of Belfour's staples. Coaches never had to worry about his fitness levels or daily commitment. Years later, the Dallas Stars equipment staff even transported a piece of luggage across the continent called the Eddie Trunk. Inside were stretching straps, bungee cords, free weights. They packed whatever he needed. Belfour was a durable cat. Over 17 years in the NHL, he appeared in 70-plus games in a single season on three occasions, and 60-plus six times. He also had a season each of 59 and 58 games. That 58-gamer came with the Panthers when he was 41 years old. He definitely wasn't in Martin Brodeur territory. The New Jersey Devils franchise player appeared in 70 or more games an implausible 12 times. But for context... Dominic Hasek had only one 70-game season, and Patrick Waugh never hit the big 7-0. Belfort gravitated towards anything that might aid his conditioning or flexibility, such as Pilates and yoga, two workouts that had yet to fully infiltrate the pro sports bubble. Forward Mike Hudson, who crossed paths with Belfort for five seasons in Saginaw and Chicago, thinks back to his friend diligently going about his business, fueling his body with nutrients, for example, in an era in which some guys were still smoking cigarettes. Yeah, the stories are legendary. I'll never forget one time in the minors at Saginaw, and Eddie fully believed this, and I wouldn't put it past him. He, he thought that if he could train for one or two years, I can't remember exactly what the time was, that he could become uh, the boxing champion of the world. He really did think that if he just had the time, he needed to get in shape and learn and do it all, he could become the boxing champion of the world at his weight or whatever weight he was going to be. Uh, you know what? 
I laughed at him when he kind of said that, you know, but after playing with him for a number of years, you think, well, yeah, it could, could be true. <laughs> Between the pipes, Belfour started off in a low and wide stance. He relied on his boundless energy and ability to read the play. He was excellent at playing the angles and would also challenge shooters to shoot for his five hole, but snap it shut in a millisecond. As a youngster, he had admired Tony Esposito, a pioneer of the butterfly, and the style eventually appeared in his game in the form of what was labeled a half butterfly. By the time he had arrived in Dallas as a 32-year-old, Belfour had adopted a more upright, narrow stance due to back injuries. According to St. Croix, the star's development coach we heard from earlier, Belfour was also gifted at keeping his eyes glued on the puck. I learned more from him than he learned from me. They called him Eddie the Eagle, and for me, going on, it was always how well he tracked pucks. And that was the buzzword for recent years, a tracking, tracking. Well, Eddie was doing this as many goalies were before they started talking about it. And I was always amazed at how he would follow a puck in and follow it away from his body and hold on to that. Like, and I go, wow. McKeegan, the ex-Leafs goalie coach, has a perfect story to exemplify another crucial component of Belfour's repertoire. His competitiveness in seemingly all aspects of life. One morning during the 0405 lockout, Belfour joined McKeegan's dryland training group near London, Ontario, for a 45-minute race around the track behind the arena. The group was mostly elite 14 and 15-year-old athletes, plus Belfour, who was 40. I'll let McKeegan pick it up from here. The race has nothing to do with goaltending. It's just about kicking people's ass and showing people you're in shape. So about five minutes left to go, he's getting beat by this kid named Michael McCarthy from Boston. And Ed's an ugly man, as you know, and he got about 12% uglier and caught this little bugger with about, I don't know, maybe 10 meters to go and beat him in a meaningless race with nothing on the line, with his Hall of Fame credentials already secured. He, he stumbles over to me, pukes on the ground near my shoes, and he's got puke hanging out of his mouth, and he looks up at me with that soft-spoken voice. He has, he goes, a kid will never beat me. And he's brought that story up. Every other phone call I have with him, you know, every month, he goes, what's that Michael McCarthy doing? Does he remember me kicking his ass? So that right there tells you all you need to know about him. He has to kick your ass in something for a Stanley Cup or something meaningless, and he remembers it, and it's burned in his brain that he beat you. Belfour out of the net, knocked down. Now he takes a swipe at Osborne, and Belfour has just jumped. Mark Osborne, Marchman's there. Now everybody gets involved. Ed Belfour started out playing center because he got such a thrill out of scoring goals. But he didn't have great size, strength, or speed. And he took too many damn penalties. This, along with an opening in the crease, nudged him into full-time puck-stopping duty at 12 years old. Of course, since a change of position doesn't transform the person, the mentality that kept sending Belfort to the penalty box followed him to the crease. In fact, his take-no-prisoners attitude became a hallmark. As former Stars captain Mike Medano lays it out, Belfort got plenty of licks in on NHL opponents. He was uh, very protective of his land, his little area. Anybody that uh, came into it, he'd let them know. 
He played nasty, he played tough. He kind of walked that line. He's one of those guys, you, thankfully, he was on your side because having to go through those playoffs against him would have been tough for us. I mean, he was just, he was just rock solid and very intense when it came to those games. The adjective intense? is defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as existing in an extreme degree. Ask those who know Belfour what comes to mind when they think of him, and the words intense and intensity are bound to dominate the replies. What was unique about Belfour's intensity was the various different ways he released it. Let's start with practice. Belfour despised getting scored on or hit with a high shot. Ronick says the goalie had strict rules for his Blackhawks teammates. I remember a time Dave Manson in the practice took a slap shot and it zipped right next to his head and just clipped his ear. And the next time Dave Manson came down the middle, Ed had already run out of the crease and met Dave Manson at the blue line and absolutely clotheslined him before he even knew it was going to happen. Dave Manson was one of the toughest guys, not only on our team, but in the league. And Eddie went after him like, you know, you don't shoot a puck at me like that in practice and kind of set a tone and set a message that you don't fuck with me and you don't do things because I'm kind of like I'm your bread and butter here. You know, I'm the most important part of this team. He would never say that. He, he truly believed that his position, I think, in his own mind was the most important position and he could win and lose games by himself. Like Medano said, Belfort would get nasty in and around the crease in the middle of meaningful games. And every so often, things would even escalate beyond the pale. In the 92-93 playoffs, for instance, Belfour smashed his stick on the crossbar before throwing it in referee Rob Schick's direction. He was furious at Schick for not calling goalie interference on a sequence that led to Chicago being swept in the first round. Belfour and Brett Hall of the St. Louis Blues had collided beside the Hawks' net. Schick viewed it as incidental contact. Belfour did not. The irate goalie opted to skip the end-of-season handshake line and, on his way into the visitor's dressing room, he broke a portable fan and coffee maker. He then told reporters the refs were nothing but a joke. Late in the 93-94 regular season, Belfour sucker-punched Sandy McCarthy. The 6'3 Calgary Flames enforcer had been cruising by Chicago's blue paint, more or less minding his own business, when Belfour drove his blocker into McCarthy's face. McCarthy comes through, he's not even in the crease. And there's the right hand of Belfort. Ah. It's not even through the crease, Belfort takes the shot at McCarthy. He is being characterized in Chicago newspapers as being troubled. Out of control is the word. Yep. Just a few months after that bloody episode, Belfort incited a postseason brawl by, not so subtly, running some obstruction on Toronto Maple Leafs captain Wendell Clark. And who could forget the multiple groin shots Belfour delivered against the Detroit Red Wings during the 97-98 Western Conference Finals? He wasn't kind to net crashes Thomas Holmstrom and Martin Lapointe, or their respective nether regions. Remember Belfour got Holmstrom in game one of this series up through the legs with a a stick? Well, he just got Lapointe this time, and there was two times he got him here. Once on the ankle with a backhand and one right up through the leg. That's not called yet. This one will be. Oh, no. Oh. According to Sports Illustrated, Belfour wasn't a saint at the University of North Dakota either, smashing a year's supply of sticks at some point during his brief time there. 
another outburst made headlines in 2002. Belfour had gone to town on the visitor's dressing room at Vancouver's GM place. Reportedly damaging walls and breaking two TVs, a clock, and a VCR after getting yanked from the Dallas net in consecutive games. Madonna witnessed Belfour's fury more than a few times. <laughs> he was really well, good at letting off steam. I mean, he didn't hold anything in. If he was bitter or mad about some deal, everybody was going to know about it. And you just try to stay out of his path because he could blow up a room in a heartbeat. That was kind of the case in Van, and I don't know if he ultimately paid for it or, or Dallas did or what, but he plowed through that locker room like a tornado hit it. Brent Sutter, a forward for the New York Islanders from 1981 to 1991, and then the Blackhawks from 91 to 98, likes to compare Belfour to Billy Smith. Smith was the Isles' star netminder during the franchise's heyday. He's also one of the most colorful characters in hockey history. His temper often led to dust-ups, and he ranked second in career penalty minutes among goalies. To Sutter, Belfour was Billy Smith 2.0. Well, Eddie was as intense, if not more intense, than anybody on the hockey team. So, you know, every now and then his emotions would get the best of him. And, he, you know, his frustration, he'd take it out on, you know, on a garbage can or on a wall or his locker or whatever. But they was just, that was just who Eddie was. People looked at myself the same, thought at times that I was nuts too. But it's just who you are because you hate to lose and you want to be successful. You want to win. You're competitive. And there's a lot of emotion in the game. And, and players that show emotion, have emotion, those are the type of things that are going to happen. And you'd rather have a player like that and a person like that than one that you're trying to get some emotion out of. Belfour's intensity would also shine through in his ability to concentrate. He focused in a very dogged way whether he was fixing equipment or fine-tuning his body and mind. Sutherland, Belfour's high school and junior coach, would test his pupils' vision and memory with these old-timey minigames. There was one they played on the road, where Sutherland and Belfour would shout out the numbers and letters of the license plates on nearby vehicles. The first to ten successful guesses won the game. Another game involved Sutherland putting coins, quarters, nickels, pennies, or dimes, on a piece of paper, which sat on the turntable of a record player. While the vinyl record spun, Belfour would be tasked with keeping track of each coin's whereabouts. Sutherland would then quiz Belfour on the year each coin had been manufactured. Here's Sutherland on a third game the coach-player duo used to play. We would take a box of marbles, and they would all be white. And he'd have one black marble in there. And he'd be shaking the box around and he'd be moving all these marbles around and he kept looking for that black marble the whole time. Everything was black on white, black on white. He tried to get the latest things that he could to make himself the best. That was the level of competitiveness that he had and the belief that if he understood the game and he understood what it took to win, that he could make the rest happen. McKeegan knows that dialed in Belfour quite well. The goalie coach will never forget the fire in Balfour's eyes one night in Toronto. A photojournalist had used the flash in his camera from a shooting spot deep in the Maple Leaf zone, which is a big no-no in NHL arenas. It can be utterly distracting. They're supposed to fire the pictures of the NHL goalies after they've made the save. Like They don't want the camera's lights in the building strobing when Shea Weber's dropping a bomb from 40 yards away. They want the goalie to be able to see it without flicker. And... One day, 
in the intermission, Eddie comes in and effectively destroys the dressing room, like loses his shit. And we're like, what's going on? What's going on? Tell those, pardon my language, those fucking people at Getty Images to fucking stop shooting that camera off when the puck's on the way in. Well, we go to the Getty Images website the next morning to look at the game shots, the game photographs, and sure as shit, there's cameras taking pictures of pucks that are 10, 15 feet out in front of them. And he's that attuned to detail. And you're talking about milliseconds difference between the flash going when the puck's on route versus when it's just hit your chest and, you know, it's glancing off into the corner and then the cameras flash. You might be wondering what Balfour's goaltending partners thought about his antics. We were able to track down just one guy, Chris Clifford from his IHL days. Clifford talked glowingly about Balfour, saying they got along well. However, based on various media reports over the course of Balfour's career, Clifford may have been in the minority. It's well documented that Balfour and Hashik weren't the best of friends while vying for starts as youngsters in the Blackhawks organization. At the end of Balfour's tenure in Chicago, with Hashik long gone, Balfour infamously told Jeff Hackett that he would always be nothing more than a backup. In Dallas, Balfour and Marty Turco didn't exactly hit it off, with Turco saying the two were partners only pretty much by title. There's also the curious case of Alex Ald. Belfour's backup in Florida. Ald needed stitches over his right eyebrow in 2006 after hitting his head on the marble floor of a hotel lobby at 3 a.m. He allegedly slipped on a water bottle while, quote-unquote, horsing around with Belfour. Further details about the strange accident were kept under wraps by the team. On the topic of his relationships with partners, Belfour offers a different perspective. The drama, he says would actually originate from the disgruntled backup, not him. No, I didn't have any problems with my partners. They had a problem with me because I played most of the games and they wanted to play. And that's a tough thing for a younger goalie to handle. So there was definitely tension at times with guys who didn't accept their roles. You're a number one goalie in the NHL. You're playing between you know, 50 games probably on the low side. And for me, I played as many as 74 games. Well, that doesn't leave a lot of room for the backup goalie to play. And if he's hoping to play 40-some games and he's playing 10 or 20 games, those guys usually get upset and start complaining. Sometimes the media can play that up, which they do. And unfortunately, some articles get written that aren't always true. At any rate, Belfort clearly wasn't the type of player to automatically conform to the group's norms or suck up to the coaching staff. Eddie was Eddie, Ronick says. He's an eclectic guy. You know, he's not a guy that you'll walk up to and automatically really love or really like because he's an overpowering personality. Eddie is very, very comfortable in his skin and has a a quirkiness about him that you have to learn about him before you really love him. And I think that's that's the best way I can describe Eddie is to know him is to love him. And if you don't know him, it's kind of hard to learn about him. There's a couple of reasons why Balfour has the secondary nickname of Crazy Eddie. The shenanigans at the rink had a major influence, obviously, but so did his rap sheet. In 2000, 
an intoxicated Balfour had to be subdued by security after resisting arrest at a Dallas hotel. During the arrest, he allegedly offered police $1 billion for his release. He pled guilty to a misdemeanor charge and was sentenced to two years probation and a $3,000 fine. Seven years later, at 41, Belfort got in trouble with the law again, this time while out at a South Florida nightclub with a Panthers teammate. Uncooperative with authorities, he was charged with disorderly intoxication and resisting an officer without violence. His third arrest came just last year in Kentucky. A 54-year-old Belfort was charged with third-degree criminal mischief and alcohol intoxication in a public place. He had damaged property and given authorities a hard time while partying at a Bowling Green hotel. Belfour released a statement after the incident in Kentucky, which had enthralled media outlets across North America because there was video footage of the arrest and a mugshot featuring Belfour, who owns a whiskey company, smiling widely. My life has been full of extreme highs and lows, the statement read. For much of my career, high intensity has served me well. Unfortunately, a lack of moderation has not. I asked Belfour about the arrests and the optics of now working in the alcohol industry. Well, I'd have to say that, first off, I'm not proud of those moments. You know, I apologize to all my uh, family and friends for those moments that have happened in the past. I think at the same time, uh, you can't dwell on the past. You, know, you have to move on. And, you know, it's like being in nets. There's going to be nights where you get lit up and things don't go your way and you can't quit. You just have to keep moving forward and you have to get better and learn from it. And, you know, that's my philosophy on life is to try to learn from your mistakes and try to be better. That's what I've always tried to do in life. Get back in the saddle and you're going. Belfort's time in Chicago came to a surprising and stunning end in January 1997 when he was dealt to the San Jose Sharks. A brief stay in San Jose was followed by his crowning achievement in Dallas. Ed Belfort is one of those two Jersey athletes, where, if most people close their eyes and picture the guy, he's either in a Chicago jersey or a Dallas jersey. It's that way mainly because his career is defined by two peaks one with the Blackhawks and the other with the Stars. From 90 to 95, or his first five full NHL seasons, Belfort was a rock star in Chicago, battling the likes of Hasek and Waugh for best-in-the-world status. His trophy haul from that period, the Calder, two Vesnas, and three Jennings for lowest goals against average. He also finished third in 90-91 hard voting and second in 94-95 Vesna voting. It's true. Hawks fans adored their number 30, memorably serenading him with chants of Eddie, Eddie, while rival fans countered with Belfour, Belfour. These war cries were especially loud and clear during Chicago's dominant run to the 91-92 Cup Final. The Hawks won 11 games in a row, which is tied for the longest streak of all time, before losing four straight to the Mario Lemieux-led Pittsburgh Penguins. Rona can still feel the belief that particular Hawks team had in their netminder. We went into games knowing we were going to win. Eddie was like the number one star of our, of our team, probably, you know, nine out of those 11 games. He was acrobatic. He was so focused. You know, that made us more focused. He was the, pretty much the, the main reason why we got to the finals that year because of his stellar play. Then we just hit a, just a juggernaut with Pittsburgh, who, you know, had nine Hall of Famers on that team. 
there's really nothing Eddie could have done in order to win that series. In January 97, the glory years over, the Hawks traded Balfour to the San Jose Sharks for three players, none of them particularly notable, as well as a second-round draft pick. In San Jose, he posted an ugly 8.84 save percentage in 13 games. Also of note, he changed his jersey number from 30 to 20. The number switch was in honor of Hall of Fame netminder Vladislav Tretiak, Belfour's mentor and goalie coach in Chicago. That summer, a chance to cash in and win drew him to Texas. Belfour inked a three-year, $10 million contract, then the most expensive deal in Stars history. Dallas, winners of 48 games in the 96-97 season, were ascending in the Western Conference. Belfour helped put them over the top. Over those three years, the club scooped up two President's Trophies, a conference title banner, and, who could forget, a Stanley Cup. Jitnik in on McDaniel. McDaniel can't move on it. Now he does. The shot, passing down. Rebound, score! Mike McDaniel with Dennis Hunt, with Brett Hall. And the Stanley Cup has been won on a quick shot. Madonna first, not in. And Red Hall rammed it home. Red Hall in close. And this is it. What stands out to Madano about Belfort's contributions to the 99 Cup victory? Just the consistency. I think he just was really compared to those goalies that we had to go through that particular year. I mean, some of them were at the top of their game. They're all Hall of Famers. There was a little bit of motivation on his part to beat these guys and go head-to-head against some of these guys. There weren't many nights he took off and and that we felt, you know, we got beat by a goaltender or, you know, they outplayed Ed. You know, there was not many nights at all that we we would ever say that internally. Medano's referring to Hall of Famers Grant Fuhrer, Waugh, and Hasek. Belfour picked them off one by one. Fuhrer in round two, Waugh in the conference final, Hasek in the cup final. Forward Jamie Langenburner was one of the youngest players on the 99 team. Contending for the cup will become an annual thing, he thought to himself. That is, until he realized how much the veterans, including Belfour, were savoring the moment. E. Carboneau and a few of the guys that have been through it a few times basically got everybody out of the locker room except for the players. And we sat there in a, in a circle. It's kind of the idea that this will be the last time we'll all be together because it just becomes a bit of a circus there. And then, you know, the team's never fully together the next year. And just seeing Eddie and these guys that had been through the battles for so long and experiencing winning for the first time, seeing the pure joy on their face of that accomplishment gave me a real appreciation for what that meant and what we had just gone through. The Stars returned to the Cup Final in 2000, but Martin Brodeur, Scott Stevens, and the New Jersey Devils took them down in six games. Belfour then spent one more season in Dallas before moving on to the Maple Leafs for a three-year stint. In typical Leafs fashion, he tasted some heartbreak, specifically in overtime of Game 6 in the second round. A familiar face, and voice, scored the winner in that 03-04 series. Lost it and picked it in. Will clear to center. And here's Ronick the other way. Two on one with Amani. Ronick with a puck. Ronick the shot. He scores! He scores! Jeremy Ronick sends the players to the Eastern Conference Finals. Sudden death magic for JR. And the Flyers move on. Belfour's final NHL stop was Florida, 
in 06-07. He went 27-17-10 with a 9-02 save percentage. A year later, he played 20 final pro games in a Swedish league. Despite all of his success in the NHL, Belfort wasn't afforded many opportunities on the international stage. He won an Olympic gold medal in 2002, yes, but since he was behind Brodeur and Curtis Joseph on the depth chart, he didn't appear in a single game. Belfort sold the 0-2 gold for $41,000 in 2016 as part of a giant auction of his memorabilia. A total of 66 items were sold for roughly $215,000 to help fund the whiskey company he now runs out of the Dallas area with son Dane and daughter Regan. Belfort Spirits, officially unveiled in the fall of 2019, already boasts an award-winning rye whiskey. The family plans on building a distillery over the next couple of years and is in the process of making the company's products available across the U.S. and Canada. Belfort is not just a figurehead CEO. He's found a second calling in this venture. At the end of my career, it's like, what do I do now? I'm just so blessed that they wanted to do this. They wanted to do it as a family. It's a family business, and this could go on for hundreds of years, making whiskey under the Belfort Spirits brand. It's a lot of fun uh, making whiskey, and um, we get to travel around. We've got a team. It's very similar to what I experienced throughout my hockey career, going to the arena every day, being with the guys, and you know, competing. I miss that. I love that. Something that's not talked about enough is how entrepreneurial Belfort was as a player and continues to be in retirement. He's never been one to stick to a single passion. As an active player, he would run triathlons in the off-seasons. A motor vehicle aficionado, he founded a classic car company called Carmen Custom. He drag raced. He would scuba dive, hunt, and golf. He got his pilot's license at an early age, too. Langenberger labeled Belfour someone who would, quote-unquote, march to the beat of his own drum in an era of players that fell into the same box. Throw in the fabled intensity and, is Belfour a true original? A person you just don't meet twice in life? Yeah, I, I think he I think he was, especially in team sports where I think there's a pressure from a very young age to conform to what it looks and feels like to be on a team. Guys maybe aren't themselves as much, especially back then. I think now you're seeing a little more of the individual of of players come out in those days it wasn't the same and Eddie had that that unique personality about him that wasn't really present in, in, in a lot of guys at that time Belfour whose fifth all-time in NHL wins is in rarefied air he's believed to be one of only two players who've won an NCAA title an Olympic gold and a cup Neil Broughton is the other in terms of the Belfour character or caricature if the fallout from his arrests are being included, he's certainly his own man. Inventive, rough around the edges, complex. At the end of the interview with McKeegan, with all of the relevant questions asked, the goalie coach was given the floor. If you have anything else to add, Steve, go nuts. I think, you know, the average person has misunderstood him over the years. They have a perception of him for some of the off-ice stuff that goes on. Everybody's conflicted in this world, but he's one of the most sweetheart guys you'll ever meet when you get to know him. I think people have judged him on that. They, they'll look at some of the old hacking and whacking and stuff that he did back in the day. But even that sums up Eddie, because 
once he recognized that when people were trying to get in his kitchen, it got him off the game, they're killing penalties, et cetera, et cetera. But as soon as he calmed that down and wasn't the hack whack legend, he, he was carrying the Stanley Cup around the next year. So that just shows you it, it wouldn't matter what had happened to him in his game. If he knew something needed to be fixed so that he could win the Stanley Cup, he would. That's Ed Belfort, sweetheart with the Stanley Cup, the most competitive guy you'll ever meet. When Goalies Were Weird is a podcast by The Score. Nick Roy is the audio engineer. Nick Ferris is a reporter and researcher. Guy Spurrier is an editor and producer. And Rory Bars is an editor and the executive producer. Thank you for listening.